Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and what's next. It's a show that asks questions and peels back the layers of our average everyday experience and goes beyond scratching the surface. We interview people doing incredible things who are making a difference around the globe. Join me as we listen in and get one step closer to understanding that big ideas shared create collaboration. Collaboration can inspire community, and communities create social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. Jason Dudek, he is an interesting guy who is into a little bit of everything. He's an entrepreneur, he's a businessman, he's an economist, he's a philosopher, he's a social change consultant, he is a lover of life, and um, uh, and I mean that in, in the best sense of the word. We talk about the root causes of things. We talk about social change and the heart of it, and, and what is its relationship to capital? And what does that even mean? We also talk about Thomas Piketty and his understanding of uh, capital. We talk about inevitability and we talk about knowledge and about how how we suppress things. We talk about meaning and, and how most of us seem to have a need for it. And we talk about the fact that most of us aren't actually motivated uh, by money. And we talk a lot about Jason's company that he works with in Sierra Leone. We talk about development as a whole and, and, and about his work with the Catherine Donnelly Foundation here in Toronto as well. So listen in. I think you're going to really enjoy this. There is a lot going on and I'm hoping for a part two. And and don't forget uh, davidpecklive.com for more information about my own podcasting. If you're enjoying what I'm doing and you're you're coming alongside it in a in a ideational kind of a way whatever the heck that means uh, feel free to support uh, what what I'm doing through patreon.com and don't forget rabble.ca for more interviews there as well coming right up Jason Dudek well welcome to face to face we're joined by a, a very special guest today uh, uh, back from from some serious traveling uh, so so he may be a little jet lagged and we're gonna cut him a little bit of slack but Jason Dudek is here with us today Jason thanks for taking the time to to chat to, to us today on face to face oh it's my pleasure David so so we could start in we, we, we met recently uh, we've we we sat down we had coffee and we were off. 
mm-hmm. conversationally into so many touch points, so much crossover from a social change perspective, from a development perspective, uh, from an entrepreneurial perspective. So maybe, maybe t- tell tell me tell me a little bit about um, tell me a bit about your calling. How's that? You know, on the way up in the elevator to the office here, we talked about this idea of, of social change being. Not so much a, a job, but a, but a calling or a vocation. Can you can you unpack that a little bit for for us? Yeah, I, I, I guess it's it's uh, it's complex because there's a personal angle of how I got involved in all this stuff, which is its own strange story. But in terms of professional and 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 what social change means to me, um, I, I think we live in an age when capital is completely changing and informing our mode of living, our politics, geopolitics, international development, everything from philanthropy to business in a way that is is not good. I Hmm. think capital, I'm a big fan of the French economist Thomas Piketty, who wrote a book called uh, Capital in the 20th Century. And one of his main arguments is there's a certain growing trend of, of capital exceeding both in in monetary financial terms but also in terms of political social power exceeding the regular economy the distinguish between those two things capital is accumulated wealth right money in the bank essentially although it can take other forms but the regular economy is activity you know production ford factory producing cars you know farms producing rice or wheat we live in an era that's defined by capital, and it's it's creating most of the political trends I think you see in Europe and the U.S. with Trump's election, for instance. Uh, it's creating strange and bizarre inequality across the world, and, and especially in developing or frontier economies, however you want to frame frame that. And you know, not to, to not I know this is sort of a rather complex picture I'm painting, but essentially. There's a certain abstractness that's occurring where more and more power is being concentrated in in the hands of fewer and fewer people in ways that has never before happened. Even in the era of, you know, the monarchy or kings or queens of Europe, you know, a thousand years ago, it's it's really something that I I think is is, is at the heart of any social change has to be an engagement with capital and our relationship to capital. for instance, my, my comment about Trump or, or Brexit, for instance, in Europe, much of this has been driven by the financialization of the economy. If you go back 50 years, the United States, for instance, most of the economy was production. Uh, financial sector was a very small part, less than 10%. Now, the financial sector in the U.S. accounts for over 30% of the GDP. I mean, it's a huge, huge aspect of the U.S. economy. And the financial sector doesn't produce anything. What does the financial sector produce, right? It, it, it enables other production for sure, but... So, so Jason, is Piketty's <clears throat> point about accumulated wealth in the sense of we're not really producing anything, we're not really doing anything, exactly. and yet we're getting richer. Exactly. Right? And right? His, his main, like the, the hidden jewel in his work is, is a mathematical analysis demonstrating capital naturally accumulates faster than pr- the productive side of the economy. Capital, it, it just... It's ballooning by by sheer math. So this is interest. This is accumu- uh, This is I was going to say accumulated wealth. This is inheritance. Compound interest, is, essentially, yeah, right? This I mean, is it's, the inheritance that there's I an have. inevitability to it, right? So yes, yes. I, and, and and I'm a big big believer in in uh, in math and in, in in science and economics, right? So you know, there's there's these rhetorical philosophical arguments, but Piketty's work. I mean, it's a huge book. It's mostly math and and 
and and and you know an engagement with with the sort of the raw data of the last hundred years. So he demonstrates that capital has a natural tendency to to grow faster and outpace the regular productive economy, which well, is <laughs> which is growing the gap. Exactly, ultimately. and it's not just growing the gap the gap sorry between rich and poor. It, it's influencing so many things. You know, politics, for instance. So go back to Brexit, right? If you look at the United Kingdom, Brexit was largely uh, driven by the small towns in rural England that used to have a steel mill or a coal mine or something, and now there's nothing. Same thing. Trump was elected by out of work steel workers and you know people who had been marginalized and disenfranchised from the economy because of its financialization. Same thing. In, you look at England. Like London is the center of the English it's economy, though. but it's it's all about the financial markets in London. It's not like a production center or something like Jeff, that. Jeffrey so. Saxon in the Poverty talks about about you know discord around the world, and I mean I think he even links it to terrorism. Is connected to disenfranchisement. It's connected to poverty. It's connected exactly. to, in a sense, this gap. Right. And, this and that growing exactly, gap. and that closes the loop on what I was saying. That's why Trump was elected. That's why Brexit, you know, happened. That's why there's this rise of this extreme right across Europe and and the US is, is because people feel disenfranchised and angry. And it's far easier to channel anger into something, you know, like the alien other, you know, let's build a wall with sure. Mexico or yeah. Yeah. I mean this is the sort of the unfortunate dark side of it. But fundamentally to understand the problem and, and do a deep dive into it is to understand the financialization of the economy and the the way the capital is just overwhelming our political, our social, our global, our developmental structures. So what days. does it mean for a guy like you, a guy like me, people that are listening who are into social change, who are thinking about who exactly I mean, the truth is we're all social changers, exactly. change makers of one kind or another, right? We're all either concerned about the environment or we don't really care at all. We we donate money to a particular cause, we might volunteer or we don't. So we're, we're 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 changing things one way or the other. Like your your comment about Piketty, there's an in, inevitability to it. Same exactly. with kind of change. How yeah. about for you? What's what is it that makes social change uh, not just inevitable but intentional? So you're involved with a foundation. You're you're just back from Sierra Leone. You've started your own uh, impact investing company. You've got lots to to add to the conversation. It seems to me on this idea, not only defining it but kind of unpacking it as well. Yeah, just to clarify, I actually run a business, not an investment company, mm. um, but it is very much the in related to impact investment. And that itself, you know, I started by saying I have the personal side, which is a long, strange story. It's a long, strange story because it's a story where I started 15 years ago with long blonde hair and, you know, a hippie kind of approach to development. And I had a master's degree or sorry, an undergraduate in philosophy. Metallica t-shirt? No, more like a tragically hip t-shirt okay, probably. Okay, but yeah, you yeah. get, the, you know, I was really into development and philosophy and now I'm a businessman. You know, I'm involved in investment. I run a big business in Sierra Leone and it's a very strange transition. You know, I would never in a million years have thought that I'm going to end up in a suit on, uh, you know, Bay Street or, or whatnot, you know, that I'm going to end up managing investments or running a big business. The reason I got into this, though, was because to follow the rabbit hole of social change, you need to get to the root causes of things. Now, this is going go back to the American election. The American electorate, especially the ones that have been disenfranchised by the financialization of the U.S. economy, have done themselves no service by voting out of anger. Trump is not going to solve the fundamental problems. In fact, he's arguably, you know, the ugly face of financialization. He's a, you know, a belligerent billionaire, right? 
So, you know, you need to understand the root causes of things. And the 15 years of social change, my, you know, to be really cheesy, but my social change journey, if you want to call it that, was transitioning from big ideas and philosophy and, you know, an interest in international development to business and investment. Because to me, the journey was into the root cause of so many of these problems, whether it's the poverty you see in Sierra Leone or the... You know, the geopolitical problems you see now in Europe and the U.S., it, it's all to do with capital in my mind. So I've, I've evolved into a series of roles that reflect that. And hmm. the reason I'm, I'm – I know this is very complex, and I hope the, the listeners aren't thinking, wow, this guy's just going on and on and off on a tangent. The reason I'm creating this complex picture is that's the only way to really understand my life and what I do. I chair the investments of an impact-focused foundation. I run a big – uh, multinational business involved in rice production. Uh, I, I do work on on investment and impact investment, the definition of it, and consulting the Canadian government and development of Canada's development finance institution. I do all kinds of different things, like you, David. We were joking about this, right? It's hard mm-hmm. to, if you're really invested in social change, it's hard to kind of frame that as a simple career. So I'm doing different things. But the the thing that unifies it is a belief that capital and harnessing capital is the key to our future if we have one. And I think this is true in everything from tackling climate change through the green economy to, you know, tackling the urgent needs of Sierra Leone. And that's my real passion. And 99% of my focus, to be frank, is on my business in Sierra Leone, where we're achieving all of the highly sought after development outcomes that big NGOs and the UN have been spending hundreds of millions of dollars on and have not succeeded on. We're achieving that through a medium-sized business. So is, so, so is the key to solving extreme poverty and all those things that are connected to it, gender disparity and health issues and educational issues, is that, you know, would you say that's directly connected to capital? It's about, it's about work. It's about production. It's about, it's about meaningful work. It's about production. It's about, um, um, getting the resources into the right hands. Absolutely. I, I, and there's so many angles of this, but the story I like to tell, if you go back about 50, 60 years, two nations, completely different sides of the world, but very similar situations, Haiti and Singapore. Poor island nations, not a lot of resources, not a lot going for them, you know, really, to be honest, at that time. 60 years later, Singapore is like the jewel of, you know, of Asia in terms of finance and education and standard of life. Haiti is arguably worse than it was 60 years ago. The difference was one harnessed capital and channeled it and wielded it, while the other was left as a patient, you know, as a, as, as a recipient of aid. And, you know, the, the, the results, I think, are really clear. I'm not trying to bash aid here. I, I run a little charity in Sierra Leone, a little orphanage through my church back in Winnipeg. Uh, you know, so I'm not I'm not necessarily anti-charity at all. I, I believe there's a place for charity. But when you're talking about progress and the future and tackling huge problems like climate change, for instance, or global poverty, it, the solution is capital and is wielding capital deliberately. How do you? How does capital have a conscience? Yeah, this is a really good question. I mean, it's something I think. Yeah, there's no easy answer to that because ultimately we're talking about human beings. So yeah. from a, so so how do you how do you divorce capital from the human component? The Syria, uh, you know, those in Syria. I don't know if you can. I think it Cambodians has to be. It has Mongolians. to be. It's a really good question. I I, th- I think we have we can't put too much power in it. It's a tool, right? 
So, you know, a machete in Sierra Leone, are you harvesting rice with it and, you know, chopping down wood to build a house or are you using it as a weapon? Right. Capital is the same way. It's, it is used as a weapon. And whether you're talking about sanctions or aggressive economic strategies to, you know, to destroy competitors or so on and so forth, capital can be used as a weapon. But if we ch- if we channel it, if we wield it, if we're deliberate about it and we structure it, it can have a conscience and it is, can is this a, Is this about is this about men and women? Uh, in, in, in villages in Sierra Leone, or is this is this bottom up? I guess is the question. Is this about Cambodian rural farmers? Is this about uh, uh, Mongolian herders? Uh, and, and figuring out how to use their capital wisely, how to invest, banking institutions, those things. Or are we talking more, you know, high level corporate, uh, uh, World Bank like kind of stuff? Ultimately, we're talking about pensioners in Canada and the U.S who lost their their pensions during the 2007-2008 financial crisis. We're talking about people who got put out of work by that financial crisis or any number of the multiple financial crises that have happened in the last 20 years. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that capital is driving crises in the West or the North or you know the, the wealthy countries of the world because there's so much of it, it's desperate for a place to go. And in that desperation, it continually creates crisis. Look at the 2007 crisis, for instance. That essentially was banks, investment banks, creating new customers by reducing the threshold or the, you know, the standards required to lend. They, want, they needed to reduce those standards to increase the market size and increase the amount of loans they could put out. That was, the, that was what was driving it. They wanted to place more money with more people. How do you do that? Lower the standards. Okay, you can't really afford your mortgage. Don't worry, we'll figure it out. And you know, there you go. You now you just place another quarter million, right? So, in its desperation for places to go, capital is continually inventing false value and creating bubbles and crisis that are eroding the real economy and the real productive economy. If you're sitting on a fifty million dollar fund during times of crisis, you know you have a lot of unrealized losses, but you know, a lot of shrewd investors buy stocks at that point. But, you know, pensioners or guy working in a steel mill that shuts down, they're not insulated from the crisis. So the value during these crises shifts even more towards the capitalists. Why does What does that have to do with Sierra Leone? Why did I use that to answer your question? Because this is, this is a huge opportunity for places like Sierra Leone, which are desperate for capital. When I'm in Sierra Leone, all I see is opportunity. There's opportunity to build roads, to build houses, to build factories, to produce rice. People need clothing. They need food. You know, our markets here are saturated. Starting a new shoe company, I mean, okay, it's possible, but it's not a need, right? It's not the same compelling capitalism of producing rice in Sierra Leone, which is what my business does in a country where 20% there's a 20% shortfall, you know, demand over supply. People are literally going hungry because there's not enough rice being produced there. So it's like calling all capitalists. Let's engage with these problems. They're real problems. And it's such a compelling picture when you flip back over to the other side, to Canada and America, where this overabundance of capital is creating crisis and creating inequality and driving these political uh, movements because people are so disenfranchised from the economy as capital moves and moves ever more wealth and power into the hands of the, of the few. If we could channel that capital rather, you know, instead of into crisis, but into development and into places like Sierra Leone, not only would that solve most, I think, of the development, the core development problems facing countries like Sierra Leone, 
turn Haiti into Singapore, literally. But it would also solve our own problems on this side where we're suffering from, you know, politically and economically suffering from an overabundance or an overpowered capitalism. So you, so you believe, uh, huh, interesting. I want to talk about excessive wealth. You think there is such a thing as excessive absolutely, wealth? Absolutely. Yeah. Abs- uh, yeah. I mean, this is something I can't comprehend. I mean, if you're not satisfied with half a million dollars a year, are you going to be satisfied with a million? If you're not satisfied with a million, right. is it going to be... Th- the key to life is, is appreciating the good things you have. And there's a degree of liberation when you don't have a lot. Like, I live a very simple life. It's part of what's enabled me to, to do the things I do. And I, I can tell you for a fact, I'm happier with less stuff. Like, I just, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't have a burden. I don't have a, concerns about things that I own. I just feel liberated. And I know some people who are very wealthy individuals who have a lot of problems because they're constantly worrying about all their things. Sure, sure. So, but doesn't that, Jason? Doesn't and, and this is not a pushback. This is a genuine question. Isn't that what drives capital? Isn't that capitalism? Isn't that sort of Adam Smith's free market in a sense that my desire for more is going to push innovation? It's going to drive uh, solving the, the the food crisis in Sierra Leone. It's going to solve the the clean water crisis in rural Cambodia and so on because. I'm going to come in as the capitalist. I'm going to invest, use your labor, and I'm going to make a lot of money saving lives. And, there, and in a sense, there's absolutely there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not suggesting there is for a second. It's, it's Paul Hawkins, uh, you know, a variation of Paul Hawkins' notion of the ecology of commerce. Let's do what we do wisely, but let's make some money doing it, right? Um, anyway, there's, so there's, again, there's a few questions buried there. but, but Definitely, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I would challenge you, though, in the sense that, if you're saving lives to make money, you're probably in the wrong business. Interesting. Okay. You know, like, there's nothing wrong with making money and getting paid to do a service, but you know, most people aren't motivated purely by money. And I'd argue the the institutions we've built up around capitalism really reward and reinforce greed and competition and, and values that aren't necessarily universal, but they really reinforce them. Uh, and conversely. There are many values we have that are incommensurable with money. And what I mean, incommensurable, I mean, like you can't, there's no dollar value on the, how much you love your, your child or how much you value your dream and your mission in life, whatever it is. You know, there's, there's no necessary link between those two things. And I do agree with you. What's going to push capital forward and, sol- you know, create the problem solving that Adam Smith was really talking about. He was talking about problem solving, right? right. He was a Scottish bureaucrat. He wasn't an investor. He wasn't a businessman. And he was writing a argument for a more effective welfare system, in fact. His argument was this decentralized, invisible hand is the most practical way to solve urgent social problems. You know, it's not, it's not that there's this inherent good behind greed or money or something. No, no, no. I mean, he was talking about this is the most effective way to solve problems. And right. I believe that still. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean we have to be greedy to solve problems. Right. And what I think we need to see in the 21st century economy is more and more ways for capitalism to engage with those incommensurable values, those incommensurable desires and, and, and ideas and you know the need people have for meaning or to make a difference. The person who's saving a life who, because they, they want to save a life and they have that mission they should be able to engage with capital in the capitalist system. It shouldn't just be like either you care about money or you go, right, go to which some is the charity division work for between, free or volunteer. Which yeah. is the division between aid 
exactly. development versus capital aid and development, if you can make that kind of a distinction. Which brings me to a question. Can you tell us a little bit about your shift and your from, you know, from from the philosophy, you know, as you say, uh, of development, let's say, into more the business of development? And maybe that's not a fair way to put it, but it sounds no, like no, it's, it's there's great. a bit of a shift. I mean, you say, you strike me as a capitalist with some really deep uh, altruistic um, and, and philanthropic tendencies, which I would say I think is kind of rare, but I'm not convinced of that. Well, I had some great mentors in my life that always made sure I had an open mind. So, for instance, um, one of my mentors at Queen's University was Professor Susan Babbitt. She did this amazing exchange course, a philosophy course with Cuba. So we went and studied in Cuba for a semester. And she was she was really uh, focused on... Exactly. You're just showing just, me her just, book here. I just, pulled, I just pulled a book out of my bag, Humanism and Embodiment, From Cause and Effect to Secularism by no other than Susan Babbitt. Yeah, How cool is that? She's amazing. And, and so one of her main focus areas is actually philosophy of science, which is all about the theory-ladenness of observation and you know, not taking for granted the number of assumptions we bring to any observation. So when I got involved in development, I was thinking of her a lot, and she mm-hmm. kind of let she, it was through her and this Cuba course I got involved in it. And ended up in Sierra Leone volunteering for the UN. So I didn't really have a, a particularly concrete idea of global development. Hmm. Okay. I was still very much open-minded and more results-driven. And to be frank, the results of the United Nations and the NGOs in 2003 in Sierra Leone were, were pretty appalling. Like, I mean, you're seeing the legacy of that today, right? And they didn't do anything. There's been no real, like Haiti, it's, if anything, the country's gone backwards. I saw that in action, and it was pretty obvious when you have, you know, an NGO where there's 10 expats getting paid, you know, a Canadian salary doing the job that could be done by local people right, right. to tell local farmers what to do, you know. Yeah, sure, or, sure. You know the, the, the whole thing was just, to me, seemed so uh, disingenuine, to be honest. I mean, I remember being in Sierra Leone for the first time and thinking, wow, this place is incredibly rough like i could spend my entire life serving this country and it would be a drop in the bucket right then i'd be at a bar with a bunch of expats and they're talking about when their next two week three week placement i'm going to spend three weeks in drc i'm going to spend two weeks in kenya what can you accomplish in three weeks in a place you know i don't know i I just found the whole thing was well so you it's kind of like to you back to me really what's kind of interesting to me though is you're you you it sounds like there's an era of uh cynicism or or realism there, and yet you're still very hopefully connected to what you're doing. Yeah, th- because despite all Change the mendacity, yeah, it, it is, and that that's to acknowledge the mendacity, the truthlessness, or the falsehood of something is a liberating and invigorating hmm. experience. Because to not acknowledge it, you know, and this is what happens to a lot of development workers; they get so burned out and cynical, ah, uh, you know, and then they just leave it. For me, I, I. I took the bull by the horns and I was like, look, this is a truly dysfunctional, messed up system that's really not working for Sierra Leone. But when you articulate what that is, see it for what it is, and then can look around with that kind of clear vision, you see in Sierra Leone an immensely powerful, beautiful, strong, hardworking population of some of the most amazing people I've ever met and learned from in my life on a country that has probably more resources per capita than any country in the world. Diamonds, uranium, oil, bauxite, aluminum, fish, tourism, agriculture. I mean, the place is a paradise. So realizing that dysfunction allowed me to see the real potential of things and especially 
to, to really humble myself and, and view myself. Look, I'm not here for me. I'm here. If I'm going to stick around here is to serve the people here. So I just attached myself to local initiatives, people who were already doing something. I said, how can I serve you? How can I help? And that led to the creation of a grassroots NGO based around local leadership and local accountability, which is still thriving today. It's actually in five countries. Um, I, I've stepped away from it since, but it's it's on a small scale, a very successful little NGO based around that principle of local accountability. But I left the NGO because I found so much of the funding and the donor infrastructure was just geared towards big organizations that were you know, not doing great work. And there's also an element of politics. You know, whoever was in, in uh, Sussex Drive House in Ottawa was going to determine whether or not I could do yeah, work. If I was. So I just thought, you know, like this isn't... Priority country. Exactly, right. <laughs> or not. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I felt, you know, disenfranchised after a while from the whole aid system, even though we created a really successful NGO that was actually ended up being used as a model for best practices by CETA. Uh, which is no longer around now. It's DFAT D, of course. So global affairs actually has gone through another. another <laughs> yeah, you're right. Sorry, evolution. I can't, can't yeah. keep track. Every yeah. time I go to yeah. Sierra Leone and come back, it's a different D name. <laughs> and NJC. Well, you know what's so funny? I, I don't know if you, you must know Ian Smiley, but uh, uh, he's written uh, about diamonds and, and different uh, different things. And uh, anyway, conversation for another time. But I remember being with him, development scholar. And we joked about how, you know, you change a letter in DFAT, D, you put an E in there and it spells defeated. And then you put an L in there and it spells deflated. And we just, we had this, uh, yeah, we had, a, we had a good chat. But a little cynicism, but we were both still smiling. So there was still hope there. I have way. to say, you know, I've worked a lot uh, in different levels with government people, though. And so many of the people in DFAT, D are amazing. And they're just oh, trying to do same. the best they can, yeah, you know. But yeah, it's... working in such an administrative um, Exactly. You know, they box. get they get out once once in a blue moon to see projects. It's not it's it's I don't I would not put the responsibility of the failure of these programs on the funders. It's on the NGOs so and it's you, on the expats who led them. So would you get rid of that? Would yeah, you go, absolutely. you know what? Oh, overseas development assistant, done. I would Forget eliminate it. all it's... aid everywhere if I could. Is except right? for small grassroots projects where it's a church supporting a church, or a mosque supporting an orphanage, or a you know a synagogue supporting a, a primary school—little little charitable things like we have in Toronto, right? Maybe maybe some larger scale stuff for acute emergencies, uh, you know, like a uh, famine relief. That would you sure, make a sure. distinction between aid and development? Yeah, I think point, this. Maybe? So let me clarify, okay? Yeah. Now, when I say aid, I'm not or development. I mean, I'm not talking about this acute, you know, saving kids, that kind Tsunami, of... Tsunami, earthquake, right. Ebola, that's different. Uh, exactly. And, you know, you see even in, you know, wealthy, highly mature uh, economy like Canada, we still have lots of charities that serve lots of great purposes. So not averse to charity and philanthropy, but what I would eliminate is development aid in the context of, you know, let's aid this country to be developed. Okay, that's an entirely different proposition and it doesn't work. In fact, look at Haiti, look at Singapore, and there, there's the results you get with that approach. Part of the reason for that is that, you know, there's a certain sense of justice to allow people to find their own destiny. And when I'm in Sierra Leone, I just see it's like everybody there, there are all these expats from other African countries, from Europe, from Canada, from the U.S. They control so much money, you know, like hundreds of millions of dollars in a country that's six million people and you know, has a has a one of the lowest GDP per capita in the world. 
And everybody there has some idea that Sierra Leone is a basket case. That it's a crazy country full of, you know, it's a messed up country. Right. And it's not. It only is now because people think it is. <laughs> Going back to Susan Babbitt, that's the theory right. ladenness of observation. Right? Yeah. We don't, yeah. a Heisenberg yeah. principle of, of quantum physics, right? We influence things by just even yeah. observing sure. them. Sure, sure. Uh, and, and if you removed all of that hubris, you would find small, humble, but, you know, efficient and effective little local markets and market ecosystems that are ready to go, ready to grow, ready to be plugged in. But that aid economy creates this closed circuit economy that has really no interaction with the local people. I mean, we work, Mountain Lion Agriculture, my company works with over 4,000 farmers and dozens of communities. And when I'm in these communities, I'm in them, you know, every day I'm going out, I'm seeing farmers, I'm working with these people they just, they shake their head, they're wise, they know exactly what's going on, and they just realize all these billions of dollars of aid money, just it's it's not going to do anything for them. They're never going to see a dime of that money. So, And in can, fact, let me, let me yeah, go. make a really important point. Not only does that money not really get to the poor, but it actually negatively influences those markets. It suppresses those markets, and it undermines and undervalues the contributions that the average Sierra Leonean can make to their economy. And if you don't believe me, look at the fact that during the aid, Ebola aid binge, housing prices in Freetown skyrocketed. Food prices have skyrocketed. Why? Because there's all these expats, all these NGOs sure. coming yeah. in. UN salaries, etc. The One of the main results, if you're a Freetown inhabitant, a Sierra Leonean, average Sierra Leonean, of Ebola aid money, you didn't really see anything except housing prices have gone up 25%. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming out. We've been doing research for seven years on effective ways to farm in Sierra Leone. I constantly see NGOs coming in with huge budgets, promoting ways of farming and ways of doing things that are just terrible, will never work, can't physically work if you look at the science, but they're promoting them because they got a grant to do that. Right. So they're actually miseducating farmers, telling people to do the wrong things. I just the whole place is so, crazy like that. So, and that's why I would get rid of it. It's yeah. like, let it take its... Own course, it's full of extremely hardworking people who have an amazing view on life that I've been blessed to learn from for yep. the last 15 years. Yep. It's got the most um, amazingly abundant natural resources. The only thing we need to do is just not mess it up and interfere with it. Right, right. And that's why, yeah, I'm an expat talking here, but I'm there to serve those people so, and serve my par business partner who owns my company and serve the, the, the farmers I work with. And the minute they tell me that, you know, we don't need you anymore, I'm, I'm gone. I'm happy, yeah, so you know. What pulled you in? to this originally what made the difference for you so um, i'm hearing a little bit of your uh, one of your philosophy instructors had a huge impact on you uh, must have been conversations you were having books that you were reading films that you were seeing communities that you were involved in always interested to know what sort of you know let's use gladwell's language what was the tipping point for you that said hey i want to you went on a volunteer trip why did you even say yes to that in the first place yeah that's a more of a personal question i guess but i've always felt very compelled to serve hmm. um i i have a deep Religious this is kind of, coming, yeah. kind, of, kind of coming full circle back to yeah. the whole sense of vocation a, and calling, right? I mean, it's in a way, that's part of what led me through all these different fields is that I, I just only ever really cared about serving. I had no, hmm. I never really felt compelled to have a stable career or, you know, like, I, I didn't, <laughs> you know so what funny. I mean? Like, I didn't care. So, I wanted to do the right thing. That should be your t-shirt, right? Your bumper sticker. Never so, felt compelled to have a stable career. Yeah. Yeah. How does your wife feel about that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, she shakes her head at me sometimes, but she's, uh, she's much wiser than I am. So I listen to her, but you know, I, I guess, just, just, I guess Jason, I, the idea, I mean, I love what you said. I've only ever felt compelled to serve. 
and 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 why you and not others? And that's I'm, I've always you know why why is someone more interested in making billions and someone else you know affecting uh, others? And 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 you could say that you're kind of the person making billions is affecting others, and maybe for the good, and maybe and that maybe sort of part of Adam Smith's point in a way, I suppose, right? The, the trickle-down effect, you've got, you know, capital. this is capital working in our favor, right? If you're driven by a sense of, I don't know, greater good, I suppose. Well, I don't know if greater good's a little abstract. I have a very strong faith, so that's guided me in my life. But also, I was born with the umbilical cord wrapped around my neck, so I came out of the womb not breathing, almost dead. And it's only because I got a miraculous stroke of luck to be born in Canada right. that uh, there was a medical equipment needed to, you know, to save my life when I was you know, a little newborn baby. I can guarantee you if I had been born in Sierra Leone right. or right. really a good part of the rest of the world, right. I Absolutely. would never have survived. Yeah. And yeah. that's always just somehow... I've never lost that sense of... When did you find that out? Was that at a young age? You yeah, yeah. I, 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 my mom told me when I was really... Because it was like a really big deal. You know, yeah, the family. I mean, it was I this huge so. near tragedy. I mean, yeah, it wasn't, yeah. So people told me, but I don't remember exactly I remember when, when we had uh, our Spencer uh, about 12 years ago, I had no idea how complicated yeah, having right. a baby really was. Yeah, exactly. I always thought, oh, you know, it's done all the time, baby born every minute or whatever, you know. But actually, it's, it's, a, little, uh, it's a little hairier than, than one would think. Yeah. So I, I just, um, I also feel too compelled by a broad sense of progress. Huh. What I mean by that is that if you were flying, if you're an alien, alien species that just uh, came into our galaxy, you're approaching our sun, you pass Mars on the way in towards Earth, you'll find a something out of a science fiction book, this Mars rover that's zapping rocks with, with lasers and sending chemical analysis by radio beams i don't even know how it works back to earth and you would think wow what an amazingly sophisticated advanced race look at this amazing technology they have on mars then you would approach the earth and after a quick scan you would see wow there are there are conditions in places like sierra leone that are appalling and in fact you know a huge chunk of the world lives in a way that's just really unjust to say, put it lightly, what does that say about us? You know, what is progress? Is it having another? Is it having another spaceship lander on Mars, or is it you know how we treat each other? I believe not just progress, but even culture itself hmm. is can be valued based on how we treat each other. So your idea of progress is very connected to your idea of injustice, by the sounds of it. Yeah, really social justice, yeah, I guess, justice. right? You know, yeah, yeah. just that you know, with the measure of our society isn't how rich the richest person is; it's how you know, how we treat each other and how how poorly the poorest people are doing. And, you know, this is something that's in the Quran and in the Bible and in, in the Torah, you know, that really if there is a God, God cares a lot about what we're doing for the poor and especially poor kids. And when I'm in Sierra Leone and I see these little kids that are suffering and have no future, and then I'm back in Toronto and I'm seeing our huge accomplishments and our science and our, you know, massive city of, you know, of towers and, and the beauty here and the technology, I just shake my head and I think, you know, man, we are failing these kids. Like, we can do better than this and we need to do better than well, this. Well, I love what you said and sadly, we've got we've to we've wrap it up, which I knew was going to happen. I feel like we're just getting rolling. <laughs> really? I thought this was but, just five minutes. <laughs> I know, what the heck is going on? Um, so clearly we're going to do a part two. That is going to be, that's my new line for face-to-face, -face, actually. I, I get into these conversations and you're like, holy smokes, where did that go? 
so we're going to have to do a part two, but I love how we've kind of come full circle in a way to, to the gap. And that's kind of what we started talking out about and how you're, you know, Sierra Leone is a country of opportunity and it's about closing that gap. It's about empowering and it's about making capital. I love too the Jason, your comment about how capital really is just a tool and it can be wielded for good or exactly. for ill, right? And I think, wow, I mean, so many lessons to be learned there, not only for development, but, but how we treat our neighbors for crying out loud and how we raise our kids as well, it seems to be. So there's pretty huge, pretty huge implications across the board. This isn't just about development. This isn't just about business. It's about the future of the human race. And if we don't, if we, you know, capital is there. If we don't, if we, you know, stick our head in the sand, it's still going to be there. And it's going to be creating crisis, driving inequality, you know, creating toxic political and, and, and social dynamics. So we, we have no choice. We have to wield it. And if we do, you know, capitalism and Adam Smith ultimately is about win-win. You know, there is win-win. There is... There is, you know, and, and double wisdom. value. And I'm yeah. wisdom. Wield it wisely. Is yeah, what exactly right. Yeah. And and if we do, there's a lot of win-wins. We can have a better economy here by investing in and solving problems overseas in yeah. Sierra Leone yeah. and, you know, actually help our own country and our own population and our own economy by doing so. And that that's what really compels me is there are lots of opportunities for for really incredible progress and, and the future can be bright if we step up and we that's just good. start – Looking at the problems with a clear, you know, unfettered vision, you know, not not being sucked into certain incentives or dogmatically committed to certain ways of doing things. If or cynicism. Just... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love I love what you had to say today. I so appreciate you uh, spending some time with us here today. Oh, it's and, my pleasure. Thank you very yeah, much, David. Jason Dudek here with us on Face to Face, talking uh, a little bit about uh, pretty much everything. Uh, <laughs> and and we'll we'll be back for a part two. So thanks, Jason. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Jason. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.